So, so I would like at some point, if possible, maybe to do an entire uh, show on bathtubs over Broadway. Um, that would be phenomenal to do that because I have, I got questions when it comes to that, man. Like the, the yeah. doc, it seems like the doc would answer everything for me. It just opened up a bunch of doors and, and they do relate to letterman as well uh like some of them like like okay here's an example of one and then i'll i'll we can talk about bathtubs but obviously you know what we're cultivating here is a letterman uh, uh podcast and audience um but i gotta ask you this question tony randall made so many appearances uh especially in the early years of of late show and and and, and late night as well but but um when you first met tony randall like, did you want to just rush over to him and start asking him about about industrial musicals, or did that uh, did you not cross lines when guys like that would show up on the show? Two factors prevented that happening. Number okay. one, I don't believe I ever met Tony Randall. The number of guests on the show who I've actually personally met and said hello to could probably be counted on the fingers of two hands. Wow. And number two. I think Tony Randall had already passed away by the time my uh, excavations got deep enough to reveal his involvement with this stuff. And in fact, I think okay. it wasn't until I was looking at, uh, I don't know, stuff at Sid Siegel's house around 2017 and seeing, I think it was a Hardee's restaurant show that Tony Randall was in. Oh my God, Tony Randall did this stuff. So that was way down the road. Oh man, that is, I, I can imagine that must have given you kind of some shivers when you saw that, because it's like, that's a guy that you could have talked to very, right. very, very easily yep. had and you had that knowledge. People, there have been ones like that, but uh, we had Tony Randall on Dave's record collection. Uh, he recorded a sort of uh, 30s-ish, do whack a do whack a do whack a do And I just remember that it was just sort of cheerfully silly in itself. And then you had to have the blow off line, which was Dave saying, Tony, do whack a don't. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> That's all you need. That's all. Hey, take my money. Um, I, uh, okay, so before we kind of leave bathtubs and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. If, if people just are, you know, confused by the start of this, that's okay. We got Steve young. Uh, oh, it's going to get much worse. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, I will say not only bathtubs over Broadway, has Dave Letterman in it. Yes. Executive produced by Dave Letterman. He lent his name to it very, very kindly. Uh, he supported us financially at the very beginning when no one knew what this was going to be. Yeah. But it grew out of the Dave's record collection bit on the show. And we were the only people ever allowed to shoot backstage or in the offices at the Letterman show. Yes. And the filmmaker, uh, writer, director, editor, Dave Ahuizanant, I met her when she was a late show editor. So the whole bathtubs experience top to bottom has this Letterman pedigree to it. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Okay. So anybody who is, uh, would consider themselves uh, even a passing fan of, of any of Dave's projects and, and wants to go a little bit further bathtubs over Broadway needs to be watched because really at the end of the day, it's the Genesis. Uh, I don't know if there's ever been a, 
bit like i mean you know you got your wayne's world they got a movie uh the blues brothers they got a movie okay so we're talking some sketches here but this is a bit from a late night talk show literally uh evolved into a documentary and and um it's so funny there's a lot of folks out there who who myself included who would watch dave's record collection and be like like i was confused when 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 these records would come on i was so confused i was like did they record this for the bit and get the art department to create a a bogus album and all of that stuff i thought it was and if that was the case that would have been genius too but the truth is even better the fact that this thing even exists oh my god dave's barometer for found comedy he was very rigorous about it it's completely ruined if we monkeyed with it as you would have but uh, I, the book, which you see in the in the documentary, yep. came out in 2013. And I remember in the Letterman offices showing the book to uh, a guy I knew not well. He wasn't he hadn't known about my collection really, but he flipped through this book and said, "This is incredible. This is wow. Well, look at all that." And then he looked at me and said, "But this is all made up, right?" <laughs> like he just thought this can't actually have all been real. And that's what kind of rewires people's brains they think this enormous hidden piece of show business that on the face of it is utterly absurd and yet is like way off the charts in terms of the money spent and the talent involved this makes no yeah. sense you never heard of this so there you go i uh, we yes we can save deep dives into that for another time okay fair fair enough fair enough i appreciate i appreciate that um and and maybe i can maybe uh i can be professional enough to kind of segue this a little bit you weren't a fan of of broadway stuff so much uh the way that some folks are now there are a lot of folks that you worked with that love broadway and 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 are as and so the question i have is 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 and i think about i think about guys like shecky uh who i who i know quite well and and and, and some of these other folks who love broadway as you were moving down the 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 very interesting rabbit hole uh and and kind of learning about broadway and learning about some of these things through the industrials thing were you did you ever go to these people and pick their brain about hey did did this person ever work on broadway or did you like because it was kind of neat you kind of jumping into that world because of this i knew uh like barbara Gaines seemed to be quite knowledgeable about broadway shows and all that I, in my early years of investigating this stuff, I think I'm more leaned on uh, talent department Rolodexes. Like if I wanted to try to get in touch with Hal Linden. Sure. Because Hal, everybody loves Barney Miller. I don't want to ask you about Barney Miller. I want to ask you about the Detroit Diesel Engine musical. <laughs> so occasionally there was a little uh, a little help from that quarter, but I didn't feel like people in the halls at the show were talking about Broadway all that much. So it didn't naturally organically come up. Although you mentioned Shecky, uh, uh, very helpful at various points because of his enormous film collection. And he said, Oh, I think I got some weird stuff in the back room on a shelf. And is this the sort of stuff you mean? And some of that shows up in the documentary, like the Purina dog child musical that uh, I would not know about if it were not for Shecky. 
Oh, that, that warms my heart so much. I love that guy so much. And, and I appreciate that. That's, that's very, very cool. Um, again, we're not, we're not starting chronologically here and I'm cool with that. Uh, did you, I was told by another, uh, staffer to ask you about, um, some of the songs that you've, you've, you've written and done the Thanksgiving song, of course. Um, uh, amazing. She, the staffer, she said to me, she goes, that's my, one of my very favorite things of the whole show was uh you know memories of the whole show was your thanksgiving song the super bowl song oh my god um were you musical oh when you started like back in the day at nbc were you already musical or did your musical ability and things uh evolve as your career evolved and it's just something that you did on the side that it very slowly evolved uh i was i would say an average music fan like i Grew up kind of listening to a moderately eclectic batch of rock and roll. And then I saw Amadeus and got into Mozart. And then it's just this landscape of of like Chuck Berry and uh, a little of this and then country music and bluegrass. and But that was all just I didn't know how to put that together with my day job. Right. It very, very slowly started to come about. I decided to get serious about guitar lessons around 2004 and oh, wow. started picking up some finger picking chops and thought, Oh, I, I love this. I seem to have a, uh, an affinity for this. And so I had several years of lessons. So I was getting pretty good and I was composing instrumental pieces, but I, for a long time felt like there's that realm of creativity. And then there's the world of words and ideas. That's the day job. And I right. very cautiously thought, what would happen if I made a Venn diagram that overlapped these two circles? And I think the the earliest was it was close to the uh, the, the Thanksgiving song somewhere around 2013 or so. Uh, there had been a couple odd outliers very early back in the 90s. You may recall the piece we did on NBC and CBS. The strong guy, the fat guy, the genius. Absolutely. You and you compose that? The theme song I worked up with Rob Burnett. And then we sort of gave a demo to Paul Schaefer and the band. And they, as they always did, just took your little nervous sounding sweaty scraps of whatever and turned it into a magnificent slug fest of music so that well, was, it was kind of like a western sort of a yeah yes rawhide that's exactly the word yes yeah i think um, uh, they all these guys uh and felicia ladies had such a wide range of references like you could just throw out something like they were working it up in rehearsal and and uh paul said to will and try try more like a, a rawhide bass boom so suddenly <laughs> Oh, and did you enjoy my Paul Schaefer impression? Oh, I've got. Uh, I enjoyed them all. I, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, there, there's not a moment of this, Steve, that I'm not enjoying. This is, oh, this good. is well, delightful. That's, that's pleasant, pleasant for me to hear as well. But it was around 2013 that I had gotten up to the point where, okay, I enjoy playing guitar and, and inventing things. And I'm cautiously optimistic about saying I could write songs with lyrics that reflect my sensibility and uh, it was probably the Thanksgiving song and a couple others. There was a, a Christmas song, I think, that aired that year. Also, I don't know if you know that one. I don't know if that's on YouTube anyway. It was uh, it's like okay. a... Dawn? 
Don, are you watch? I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's watching. I don't think he's got a feed into this or not, but he's very quick. Uh, you know, he so Don, let's figure that out. Let's find it somehow. Let's give it to Walter. Yeah. The Christmas song, yeah. early early nineties. Uh, oh, this is the in the twenty thirteen range. Okay, when okay, yeah. Doing more deliberate, and it was like a Christmas song about. Uh, uh, it was called unsanitary manger. It's like you're you're courting danger if you have your kid in a, in a manger. And it's, <laughs> You're courting danger if you have courting danger if you have a kid in a manger. All those filthy camels, each with millions of germs, and those other Middle Eastern mammals. Many have parasitical worms. Something like that. It's just so festive. Well, it writes itself after that, doesn't it? I mean, it, well, the goal is with comedy or music to make it seem like it wrote itself and make right. it seem inevitable even though you've sweated uh, behind the scenes on a hundred drafts of something or whatever. There's a special kind of joy when that perfect word just shows up, isn't there? Yeah. Those, to the right mind anyway. When uh, the thing falls out of the sky on you and you just catch it as opposed to uh, aggressively hunting small to medium ideas <laughs> through the, the forests and fields for hours and maybe not catching them. But you mentioned the Super Bowl song. Yeah, that oh was God, one yeah. of the few times when I actually had an idea that I I wanted to think about on off hours. Like I remember, I never took work home on the weekend. I mean, yeah, I'd think of a fun fact or some odd idea would occur to me, but I sat yeah. down. I had the idea for this song, and I worked on it on the weekend and brought it in on Monday and gave it to Matt Roberts and said, "See what you think of this," and and he saw some value to it. But yeah, that was one of those. Uh, like it has a 99 bottles of beer on the wall feel to it. Like when yes. the, the, the singer, I forget the guy's name. He was terrific. The NFL historian. quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he really uh, walked a crazy tightrope in that performance and, and made it across flawlessly. But the audience have always thought it was very interesting in that song. The song for anyone who doesn't know it, it's, it's basically just reciting Roman numerals one through 48 <laughs> which gets very tough rhythmically the further you get into XXXI, XXXIV. And I think when the audience realized III, IV, V, VI, and they thought, oh no, they're not seriously going to do this. And then somewhere around probably the 20s or the 30s, I think there was a dawning realization this is actually working and he might land this plane. And it will be kind of weirdly awesome. Yep. And then he did land the plane and it's just, oh my God. And uh, I've read that Andy Kaufman actually used to do 99 bottles of beer on the wall and have that oh. effect the audience where the audience would be very angry at first. Yep. How dare he embark upon this pointless, extremely lengthy, absurd conceptual project. And then somewhere in the 60s or 50s, we see over the horizon to the end of this and it is going to be unbelievable and awesome. And we're going to be able to say, you wouldn't believe what this guy did, but he did it. And we were there. So there was a little taste of that somehow. Just, just so thankful it worked out. Paul and the band again, uh, turned a, a sort of crude iPhone demo into this like, uh, powerhouse of a performance with the, that I, singer. Oh, I can't remember his name now. 
well, maybe by the end of the episode, or, or we'll try and maybe find it and quote it in the description if if, if possible. Or, or um, I, I would love to. Uh, I want to get this show to a place where, uh, like, I'm I'm trying hard. I'm I'm calling Walter and and all these people. I'm trying to get this thing official. So it would be so cool if, as we archive this thing, um, we could officially insert clips and things like that and and but if the the videos uh, exist online we'll definitely put them in afterwards and we're we're building that mechanism into the show here and i would love to do that because there's a lot of people who did performances like that um similar similar again uh, fishermen can recognize another fisherman uh, you know the way that you have uh, brought awareness to the industrial musicals I, there's there's moments on the show and that's the part i just I can't wrap my head around um, the fact that there is so much gold that you held for a moment and threw away because there was a next night where you had to mine for more gold if if, if you could. And, and, and I call it the greatest body of broadcasting work in history because it is. And there's so many of those moments that I would love to collect and throw out there um and and for 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 generations to come because so much of it is timeless. Um you talk about uh, I, I want to go back to something that you, you you talk about, which is the journey of uh, of, of a bit, um, and it could go long running. Like, I mean, how many times did Dave ask a, a musical actor, "Are those your drums?" Mm -hmm. And 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 you know, six months later, he's still asking the same question. And we had Steve Weiner on the show not too long ago. He talked about you know the, the the pencil through the window or the card through the window, um, and it wasn't funny, you know, but then it became funny. Then it became an institution. Um. Are there ever times like you're a, a genius when it comes to this stuff? I'm sure you're going to not accept this compliment, but you are. You're you're a mind of the highest caliber when it comes to comedy. It Everything at its highest level is philosophy. Can you predict that? Can you ever take an idea that's conceptual and then say, you know what? We could probably turn this into an institution or is that something that just happens? It's very tricky and uncertain to plan for a refillable or plan for a signature bit. And you well know the sort of offhanded way that something like uh, the top 10 list came into being. And then later, okay, sometimes Dave wanted to retire the top 10 list or what can we do that it's great and comforting and stabilizing to have refillable forms that you can go to, mm -hmm. but uh, finding the right one that Dave might say no on one day. And if you'd pitched him the same idea a week later, for some reason, he might've said yes. So you're always playing with 10 different ways for things to not uh, hit the, the perfect spot. But I remember will it float came out of one of those very specific we need a new signature piece we deliberately are going to try to think of a thing that we could do again and again with certain hopefully fun elements and unpredictability and yep. kinetic television uh delightful chaos so <laughs> but there were lots of other ideas in that batch of pitches which might have been good and just didn't happen to be picked I think we did very well with Will It Float, which I think was Carter and Craig's idea. Yep. I pitched uh, in that same realm, just like every night it's like, what's in the cab's trunk? And a cab would drive down 53rd Street <laughs> and stop. Cab driver would get out and open the trunk and there'd be some surprising thing there. Just sure. sort of elemental and random and whatever. 
and it might have worked. It might have not caught on for 10 different reasons, but yeah, it's so unpredictable. You can aim for the refillable and the classic bit. You might try what seems like a surefire thing and it just somehow doesn't quite land with the audience. And then you say, all right, never mind. We'll try something else. Uh, well, one thing I'm glad about is that Spike TV is no longer on the air because uh, they would have taken that idea and it would be a show next week now. Um, no, looking I through get any money from it? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Uh, you know, <laughs> I uh, I think about like, is that is this something? Uh, you know, and, oh, is and, and, this and, anything? You know, is yeah. it, or is this anything? You know, and then and then you have the bizarre performers from across the land. I I love the idea of that. And then, you know, Dave and Paul just kind of riffing off those things. Those were just riffs too, right? Like, Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. But that was an example of, I don't know, is this anything was actually a phrase that writers would use in like pitch meetings where you'd say, I have the beginning of an idea. I'm not sure. See if you guys think this is anything. Yep. And what if this, and so you get this sort of ironic detachment at the same time you get to actually have the guy on unicycle spinning plates and it's like the embracing of some weird vaudeville act at the same time you're saying we're, we don't know about this and we're not endorsing this necessarily yeah. so you get that sort of uh sort of dualism of yes this, this is on our show and we don't know what this is and this is barely our show <laughs> right <laughs> um I appreciate you letting me kind of just pick your brain and jump around like this. Um, I want to go back to the beginning and, and where I want to talk about this is Mr. O'Donnell. Um, what a, what a, oh, what a class act of a man that that guy is. Um, I, I referenced uh, one of the funniest speeches I've ever heard. Um, you're a public speaker. And, and I want to talk to you about that before this show is over today. Um, you know, and, and, and he received the, uh, the Herb Sargent award. And, and and the footage of that, it might be one of the greatest acceptance speeches I've ever seen. Um, and, and, and I don't think he ever accepted the award. All he did was he talked about the beautiful, amazing experiences he had with people that he worked with along the way and did it in an extremely clever manner. Um, in as part of that speech, I highly recommend anybody, uh, obviously not right now, but you know, when this is over, go and yeah, there you go, then go and watch, um, that 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 the Herb Sargent Award where Steve, uh, with Steve O'Donnell, uh, won the prize. Steve Young introduced him, and it was very cool because while Mr. O'Donnell was talking about all these people that he got a chance to work with along the way, um he was kind of making the point of what your introduction was. And your introduction was, here's a guy who put a hand down and pulled me up and gave me uh, so much. And, I, and I've heard that about him. Daniel Kellison talked about that. And other, other people have talked about how Steve has done that for them. Safe, safe to say, as you were getting your start, as you were brought into the fold, uh, Steve O'Donnell was a uh, uh, an immeasurable force to do with that. Yeah, he was the head writer who hired me in 1990, I had known of him before that. I think when I was about to get out of college in 1987, I actually called the show and how I even got a phone number. I don't know. I, I must've had some uh, uh, transient whiff of ambition briefly in my life. And then I got him on the phone in a weekday afternoon, which is nonsensical right there because it was like being on the high speed speed treadmill of, oh, my God, we have to tape the show in an hour. And somehow he got on the phone, and had an amiable conversation with me. And uh, 
think I referenced that in the uh, remarks I make. You did. Uh, introducing him at the Writers Guild Awards. But yes, uh, beloved and respected. But many people are respected without being beloved. Steve was both because he was a real nice person who uh, just related to people and wanted to meet them and and find out about them. And if he saw a glimmer of something that entertained him, he, he was happy to uh, try to help it find its home. And that with, with me and many other writers of that era, he saw something mm -hmm. that he thought could be cultivated. And we were often given a little while to find our sea legs at the show. Later on, it was much more, if you're not getting good stuff on the air in the first six weeks or something, you, we're going to move you on out and try somebody else. I was allowed to find my uh, find my way and uh it to my mind and generously it took many years i don't think i was really really good at that job until quite late in my tenure there and even then that's like a, a major league batting average is like oh you're hitting over 300 that's that's good i mean if you pitched 10 ideas and three of them were pretty good and worth trying that would be that would be a good average there as well mm -hmm. so Anyway, Steve O'Donnell, I've, I've told this story elsewhere. I don't know who's heard it, but my very first day at the Letterman Show, April 30th, 1990, he met me at some elevator bank in 30 Rock. I'm looking around. Oh, my God, I'm in the big leagues. It's so exciting. And brought me upstairs and said, uh, we got to find you an office. And on the 14th floor of the certain part of NBC, Mm -hmm. There were numerous empty offices. Several writers had skedaddled for the West Coast after the eighth anniversary show that winter. Okay. The show had been in LA and people had been having meetings and suddenly had new jobs offered to them. And there was a big turnover on the staff. So I was part of the new generation coming in that involved Paul Sims, Spike Ferriston. Wow. <laughs> Steve O'Donnell said, Let's get you an office. How about this one? And I said, Uh, sure. Hmm. And, uh, I don't think, did we even have computers yet? Maybe we did. They had just started getting computers instead of typewriters. But what was unusual about this office was there were boxes of record albums on the floor. And I said, oh, what's all this with the records? He said, well, the previous writer in this office was in charge of a bit called Dave's Record Collection. And with these weird record albums, hey, maybe you could be the new Dave's Record Collection guy. And I said, <laughs> sure, I guess. Okay. And Good place had, to start. Okay, so he's giving you something on your first day. Right. He's sort of, he thought that I might have a good sensibility for that. But really, within the first 20 minutes of me arriving at 30 Rock, the the first domino had been hit in a long chain, which would result <sighs> in books, documentaries, lectures, public appearances, uh, this whole twisted miniature empire, which grew out of that. <laughs> Uh, I'm very, very grateful that you you set the table so beautifully when it uh, when it came to that because that was going to be my question is okay, you kind of stopped at uh, in the speech you stopped at, at at when he got you the gig, and I'm very I'm very interested to know you know what the first year or two looked like for you and you've really done a good job setting the table for that. Um, was it was it difficult? Um, you know, you're in the big leagues now; it's all new. And 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 the attrition, like you said yourself, uh, you know, major league batter, three out of ten, uh, for a comedy writer on a show like that, I would think it's not even. I mean, my word, um, the attrition of 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 ideas. 
Um, was it difficult for you? Like we had Tommy Ruprecht on not too long ago and, and he talked about uh, like, hey, what are some bits? I, uh, well, the question I asked, what are some bits that you pitch that you wish would have got done, but they got left on the floor? And it was so funny because he thought about it and thought about it. He goes, you know, the only ones I could think of are the ones from the first few weeks in the in, in the gig before I learned the skill to just let it go and move on mm -hmm. to the next. And and I, I don't know if that relates or not, but um, was, that a, was that a difficult uh, transition for you or was it because you were so green, you just learned how to do it right from the start? I had had a couple other TV writing jobs. So luckily I had the worst of the greenery maybe had been, uh, had been seasoned out of me at the comedy channel, which had just started up mm -hmm. before it was comedy central. Yeah. Uh, HBO is not necessarily the news, which was actually my oh. first job, but oh man, that's I awesome. always, when we would meet with the interns every semester and, sort of toward the end of a semester, they'd all come together and they could ask us questions, all the writers, and we would just try to give our perspective on what it all meant to us and what to keep in mind. One thing I always said was you have to learn to care enough to do a really good job and really push yourself to like, okay, that's a pretty good joke, but what's a better joke? How can we push, but not care so much that you're, hurt and wounded and and knocked down painfully by something not getting on the show so right. i'm sort of with tom on that yes there were pieces that didn't get on that probably would have been great sometimes they hovered right up at the edge and they were produced and ready to go and didn't get on somehow sometimes it was oh i've always thought that if he had been pitched this idea on the right day dave might have loved this and then it would have gone but who knows you, you it's a volume business and the the blessing and the curse was whether you stunk the place up one day or had like the the funniest thing that you've ever had the next day you're back in the same boat with everybody else with uh, a blank slate and uh, uh you can redeem yourself or you can try to follow up something good but you're you're always just you get a new start every day pretty much yeah, and that would seem to be a, a, a the thing about I call it the shorthand I call it is the pants family. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, it was before that with late night as well before it was officially pants and all that. But I just call it a shorthand call it the pants family is that seems to be um, there's a few things that everybody I talk to, you know, I I'm a good friend with uh, Scott Ryan who wrote last day's letterman. It's, it's my favorite book. Um, and I love Carter's books. No offense to Bill Carter. I love his books. His books are just as dog eared. I love this book though because it really does a good job talking about the family, um, and 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 it seems like so many of you guys and gals have such similar dispositions when it comes to certain things. And 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 Dave is legendarily uh, known for you know his postmortems and how uh, you know how hard he could be uh, on himself or on 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 the shows if that didn't go well. But that concept that, well, okay, to, at some point, even up to Dave, who has that reputation, at some point, what you just said, it's like a light switch that kicks on and goes, okay, well, tomorrow's a new show, and we're going to start from scratch, and we're just going to, you know, clean slate and take it from there. Um, and maybe because of that culture, that's why there are so many people who had the longevity that they did, including the host himself. I don't, I don't know if that had to do with the longevity or not, but it seems like it might have. You learned if if you found your way there to 
trust like in the writer's room I, i've heard of terrible writer's rooms where everyone is paranoid everyone yeah. is scratching for credit if i win you lose so i must win and you must lose there's i think no shortage of rooms full of uh, sharks like that Shark as i tank. said yep talented but not necessarily beloved people who mm. populate certain branches of the industry but we were lucky with uh, a very long-term stable core of people who were comfortable enough with each other to say, uh, I have the beginning of something, but I don't know where it goes. Or I have this phrase and it may be stupid, but I'm just going to throw it out there. People would make themselves vulnerable on a daily basis in the writer's room and say, wow. whatever this is in my mind, I don't have it. You're going to have to help me. And maybe together we can make something that neither of us could have made apart. So on a good day, that would be like, somebody else pitches the beginning of something that I couldn't have thought of, but then I add the detail that make, Oh my God, now it's a slam dunk. Yeah. Two people together on a, uh, in a room like that or more. I'm we did things on a collaborative basis. Sometimes that were just everybody helping, but that took confidence that you believe these people are not rooting against you. It's trust. They're, it becomes a trust issue. Yes, yeah. You want to do well. You want to be funny. You have that ego and you want to, keep proving that you're worth the paycheck so if a long time goes by and you're not getting anything on that's not good but you're also feeling like if if tom ruprecht or joe grossman has the best idea today and the show is great tonight well we've all won we know it'll be my turn next time or next week or whatever and not all shows get to that uh sort of collective trust and there's yeah. all these other ways things can go wrong uh along the way uh, production bottlenecks and uh, mm -hmm. some news story flares up in mid-afternoon you have to rewrite the whole show to be about that and throw away this other good stuff that you were excited about so yeah you just learn to trust people hopefully if it's a good place like that and not agonize about what what did get on hopefully over the long haul you'll have some hall of fame pieces you'll be glad about that they beat the odds and got on and were triumphant like one i remember is just one of these silly ideas it was fairly late and i think i did write a song for it <laughs> it was just or oh, like a little music bit would start oh you know what that th song means folks it's time for my grape break and there was a grape break song and a grape <laughs> lowered on a, a filament from the catwalk down to dave and 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 the way i wrote it it was just going to be like in a little box and he would open the box and eat one grape and it would be just a lot of effort for something nonsensical but dave kind of got a hold of it and said oh you know what put the grape on an on like a sewing needle and then he did this long thing where he's trying to <laughs> get the grape in his mouth and you see shots of that stage hand with the fishing pole with the grape on it and it <laughs> it was such good humored chaos because dave was in the right mood that day and said this is going to be stupid fun and we're in <laughs> And and I couldn't have predicted how it would turn out. Some days, yeah, Dave would take something that you thought was this level and make it way up to here. Yeah. Just decided to run with it. Well, and I think that uh, safe to say, I mean, so many people talk about. Uh, there was an article that came out. Uh, I forget where it was. I, I apologize. I wish I would. I can reference it, but it was like the top ten. Uh, David Letterman moments. And we even referenced it once on the show with somebody. Uh, they're all blurring together already. Um, I can only imagine what it was like after thousands of shows. But 
Yeah, um, it's pretty blurry for me, honestly. Yeah. But, I mean, I was there for 25 years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the idea, though, um, that um, on one day, uh, like you just said, there's one day that Dave may be way into this. The other may not. Um and, and there were things that were built that were like institutions because of that. There became rules. Uh, don't write anything about this. And, and it became a rule all the way along. No, no, no. We never talk about that. We never write about this. We never write about that. Uh, it was on Tommy's show. That's that's where that was. And then, but at the end of the day, that rule may have just started from a, a, a mood that he was in that day, but then it became an institution within the show. And it's fascinating to know that that's the framework of the show and the culture of the show came from from that uh i i i was fascinated by that there was a certain amount of kremlinology of yeah. uh what has the great leader said and what are the implications and what might have been just a irritated tossed off remark is now enshrined as some sort of inviolable rule yeah and then later no i don't I, i'm not <laughs> i don't hate that i don't know where you got that idea and you like, remember what? why it started yeah so <laughs> You, you do your best to try to understand an ever-evolving ecosystem of rules and preferences. And and uh, at some point, you found that, oh, but this contradicts that. Uh, well, that's the nature of the game. Just like yeah. every day, the, the mood may be different, and the, the show evolves, and the world evolves, and now we're going to talk about this, and we're going to find our own way to put an imprint on something like after... 9-11 the classic dilemma of oh my god the world has changed how does comedy fit into this very yeah. different feeling world and the very tentative ways that dave tried to test uh are do we want to laugh do we think we should laugh at silly things and are we still fully human beings that have all these impulses not only grief but optimism and laughter. And yes, we, we found our way slowly back to that. Well, and, and it's funny, like that article that I was, uh, that I, I forgot to reference in the last thing that I said too, was, was the, the top 10 moments, the top 10 Dave Letterman moments and eight of them or seven of them were moments where he was reacting to something. Like it was like an off the cuff because I don't, I don't know if there's anybody uh, on the planet who's better at reacting to things the way that Dave does, the, the genius level of, of, of that. Um, I think about after 9-11, you talk about this. I remember him saying, can we try a joke? Can we, okay, or is it all right that we, and I mean, I don't imagine that that was scripted, like like even just that part of it alone, um, you know, that's that's the off the cuff I mean, they call it a Midwestern sensibility, that aw shucks uh, personality that he brings, uh, he brought into it. Um, did it take you a long time to, I ask this question of all writers, uh, or at least if I don't, I, I need to. Um, did it take you a long time to start writing in Dave's voice? Steve O'Donnell recognized that I had some core sensibility that was a good match for the show. Okay. So he said, "I'm gonna put, uh, I'm gonna put some chips down on this guy. I think things should work out. If he if he immerses himself in the show more, he'll be very good and reliable." I had watched the show actually very little, and I may be an extreme example of what I think is true of some of the earlier generation Letterman creative people. 
they were not necessarily enamored of television and did not absorb it like a sponge and worship it. I had seen the show, I don't know, probably a handful of times. Uh, the first time I ever saw it, I was flabbergasted. It was early 1983, and I, I was up late with some friends. I saw this show I'd never seen before, never heard of before. And I ended up on the floor, curled up in a fetal position, laughing so hard I could barely breathe. And yet I did not, from that moment, say, this is my life's destiny. I must right. find these people and work with them. No concept of that. I didn't know TV shows had staffs, really. Yes, there's names going by at the end, but I didn't mentally yeah. consider that. And I also didn't even think I've got to find a way to stay up late every night now and watch it. I don't uh, years went by in the mid eighties and high school and college where I really ignored the show completely. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of doesn't make sense that I ended up there, but it also makes complete sense because the early people like Steve O'Donnell and Dave himself, I think had an interest, but a skepticism for television. They were not hypnotized by yeah. the glamour and everything. They just thought, well, this is, this strange part of our lives, which we will acknowledge and we will also satirize and keep <laughs> at an arm's length sort of emotionally. And, and I was, so I came into the Letterman show not knowing a lot. I think when I started, I, I oh, oh, I better, I better cram. And I like, I watched it every night for two weeks before I started. So I right. kind of, here I go, I, I can do this. But I, there was so much that I didn't know that I didn't know. Like maybe the average viewer wouldn't even know this either, but meetings, people would talk about, oh, should we have Calvert do this? What yeah. if Calvert does that? And I finally said, excuse me, who is Calvert? <laughs> Come on, you don't know. Everybody knows. Well, it's Larry Bud Melman. That's what people on the other side of the TV know him as. I don't know how many people knew him as Calvert. So I actually didn't feel too bad about Certainly that. Certainly not at that time. Anybody would have known at that time. I yeah, don't think anybody... Was, yeah, there was there was no internet message board where people were talking about behind the scenes of all this, but uh, you'd have a good idea, and someone said, "Oh, we did that in February of '89," or and a fair amount of instances like that where somebody would have a good joke. The craziest version of that I ever had, which also was encouraging in a way, it was the new books segment at yeah. NBC. Yeah. And just like make up fake books that the props department would put together. And uh, I proposed one it was the New York City white pages arranged by height rather than alphabetical order. <laughs> okay. And I handed that in on my page of however many. And Steve O'Donnell called me down to his office and said, I see you had this. And I said, yeah. And he, he went over to a file cabinet and rummaged and he found one of the other writers like three years earlier had written the same joke and had had it had not gotten on so there was no way i was drafting off of somebody else's ideas just that i bizarrely arrived at exactly the same conceptual bit of nonsense and even then i don't think it got on but it told me and probably steve o'donnell yes this is the right sort of person here for this place 
Uh, well, I, I, oh man. Okay. So I got a couple things. I'm going to, I'm going to just go off the freshest thing that you said. Elizabeth Gilbert in one of her books talks about the idea that whimsy or, or, uh, inspiration, it goes from person to person until it's realized. Uh, and, and, and she's got examples of it in, 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 in uh, a couple of examples of it in, in, in one of her books. And she talks about that and, and how, okay. So because that by her logic, because that joke wasn't put on the air, it's going to float to somebody else until it does get put on the air. Did that joke make it on the air when you did it or did it, did it, has it ever been realized? I think it has been now enshrined as this anecdote, but I don't think that it ever got on the show. I gotcha. So, I mean, people also talk about there was certain patterns of history where things were converging and it was the time in history where somebody was going to invent the steam engine around this time. If right. it wasn't this guy it would have been that guy. And whatever. Yes. And, and uh and if uh if a certain joke or tv show hadn't been invented by its credited person then other people like thomas edison we give him credit for the light bulb there were sure. 10 other people working on light bulbs yeah varying degrees of complexity or efficiency and, and there is some talk that he occasionally either stole or bribed or whatever just so he could have the clean playing field on things but yeah uh, i would see I ran the monologue from 2004 to 2015. Yeah. And we would get jokes in very professional, good, solid current events jokes. And then Jay Leno would have the same joke on the same night. And I don't think there was any foul play. It's just that it's low hanging fruit in a way uh, for lack of a better term. People are working with the same set of news stories and the same internal templates yeah. oftentimes and we'll get to the same point you can't agonize over that but the the white pages one seems so improbable to me that is really, really close yeah. yeah uh i want to talk about your vocabulary a little bit um i i haven't asked any of the other writers this yet uh, the thing that strikes me through so many of you um again from steve weiner who worked at the show a relatively short time but was there at the very beginning uh to guys who worked like to yourself uh i hear i hear echoes of dave's voice um and where i really hear it are is in the vocabulary um at any point in your career did you ever consult a thesaurus or did you ever uh bone up on vocabulary or have you always been gifted or at least interested in learning new words and things like that i know i've got favorite words and my next question is do you have any favorite words i'm going to say favorite words are there two or three that pop into your mind uh, I'm going to defer the favorite words question for a moment. Okay. Vocabulary, I think, just came by naturally. But being at the show and, and being at close range with Dave, I'm sure that uh, I was bolstered in my appreciation of precise words and artful word choices. And I also loved when he would get things a little twisted in a wrong way that was even better than the usual reality. And some of it, I mean, is just willful silliness, like calling people by the wrong names. Sure. But sometimes they were so wonderful. Like I remember he was talking to Sarah Jessica Parker and he said, how's your husband? Do uh, and he couldn't summon the name Matthew Broderick or he decided to set the real name aside. And say, uh, how's your husband doing? Um, uh, you, you know, uh, Punky Brewster. Yeah. So <laughs> what neural pathway got him to that? Yeah. Uh, so I always appreciated that. And 
just the the inner clockwork whirrings of his mind able to connect disparate things and ornate improbable details at lightning speed i really admired and part of that is verbal part of it mm -hmm. is conceptual uh, i think you can get too excited about words and get too heavy-handed and yeah. simplicity cut back he always wanted to simplify it cut it down make it shorter he didn't he didn't appreciate wordiness unless there was a joke about excessive wordiness i think so uh i i tried to walk this line of being interestingly precise yet not blah 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 all the time yeah your guys's economy of words all of you i always feel bad because my economy of words is terrible i'm a i am a writer like i do enjoy writing my wife and i wrote a book together and and and, and i do enjoy writing um not that i'm necessarily any good at it or entertaining by it but i do enjoy it uh but when i'm trading emails back and forth with you guys i'm really cognizant that uh all of you are ninjas when it comes to economy of words. You can say in two or three sentences what it takes me two or three paragraphs to say, mm -hmm. even though I think I'm being clever along the way. The idea of say it, but just don't reiterate it and, and get it down to that uh, very quickly. Your economy of words is incredible. I don't know if you had that, if that was one of the sensibilities that Mr. Anano saw in you um, or if you you know learned that along the way. But yeah, your economy of words are are, are – um, uh, incredible um i i, I but let's uh, hey he said th look at that somebody on the show took a compliment actually took a compliment probably to get me to shut up and stop saying it no, but um, i also wanted to show that i could do it with one syllable <laughs> but uh yeah dave was a great aficionado of artful brevity and and part of it was practical he didn't want a monologue joke that spilled onto a second cue card. Yes. And so there'd be a lot of telegraphic sort of implied, like hot today, saw yeah. blah, blah, blah. Just like he could embellish it as conversationally as he wanted yes. at whatever length and density he felt like in the moment. But he sure. appreciated that things were, were boiled down and carved down to the, to the bone. And so you, you, if you had any affinity for that, you were only going to get better better at it so i i think i think i probably did uh increase my ninja like word use <laughs> you sharpened the pencil or the sword as the case may be yeah. um i saw i went and saw dave uh well it's a couple months ago now in may um when he was recording the uh the new show on netflix the stand-up show um that's my time with david letterman and and i mean i'm right there in the third row the first two rows are are uh uh, a planted audience, you know, it's a Netflix thing. They want to make sure they get their diversity and all that sort of stuff. It was, it was a, a phenomenal experience um, seeing him on stage again. I didn't think I'd ever get a chance to see him after uh, that night was the last night I saw him uh, the night where we had that picture taken. Um, and I was lucky enough to have my little moment with him photographed and immortalized. Uh, I didn't think I'd see him again and, and watching him live. It was amazing. Everything you're talking about was still very, very true. And, and I didn't want to, um, you know, get in trouble or disrupt the production. But I was turning around constantly because he had the big, they didn't have the cue card. Then Todd wasn't there uh, with the cue cards, uh, but on a big plasma or plasma, I just dated myself on a big screen behind the audience, there was his cue cards. They were there. And, and it was, it was, it was lovely and how, uh, how he could, 
you know, go through his process that way. And I wanted to, I was fascinated by it. I wanted to turn around and just look at the screen the entire time, but I would have disrupted the production and I would have been told to, you know, stop that. Um, but it's fascinating to me how he can take the bullet points and 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 just with the ears to hear what he actually says versus what's up there. Um, a tremendous skill. And when you compare it to what Johnny used to do when he, Johnny had everything lined up all in one, uh, very interesting. It shows right there the difference, I think, between a, com a comedian and a broadcaster. Um, I don't know if that if that resonates with you or not, but I, I think it does. I mean, Dave started in radio in college yeah, and this early training in just being comfortable with a conversational flow or even a, not a conversation, but just continuing to talk and form thoughts and martial thoughts and have something to say. Yeah. If you become comfortable with that, it's, it's a, a wonderful thing. I, 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 think he did get better and better at it over the years uh one of those uh maybe the Zinneman book pointed out and it yeah. this struck me i don't think i'd ever considered this before in the early 80s he was not holding forth about his opinions and feelings and confusions about life and then as the years went by he felt more and more comfortable you know something i don't understand or here's what happened to me on the weekend and see yeah. if you think i'm crazy like he would start expounding yes. about things that he felt and that he experienced and early on he was much more of a, a cipher and he would be asking good questions and listening and having a good conversation but he was not as much a character in the show as he was this uh hard to pin down ironicist or something and uh, so he got better and better at that. And, and yes, I think he, by after the late show ended, he realized, I just want to have interesting conversations with people. Yeah. I want to strip away the parts of the show from 20 or 30 years ago that I feel like I've had enough of and just go into the, the, the deeper talk with people who interest me. Uh, I was talking about this with, um, do you know who Jay Ryan is? The guy who he's the guy that stole Dave's microphone. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember when Dave's micro microphone got stolen? No, this is the first time hearing of it, and I'm outraged. <laughs> Are you you serious? You don't you, remember, you don't remember this? Um, it was, long, I don't know. I hear when, you. Okay. Well, he had in it was uh it was when the bridges um we got one of the bridges actually that's coming for our new set which I'm very excited about it was it was around the time when the red floor went away and they put up the bridges which ended up being the kind of the 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 the, um, the stage dressing for the rest of the run. Uh, Dave had that old microphone that can go goes back to all the way to Jack Parr that he had, right. they stole it from NBC and they brought it over. Well, there was a night where that microphone was was stolen, um, and and uh, so Jay was the guy that that took it and he's trying to get it back to Dave now and all that sort of stuff but i wasn't sure if you you were aware of that you did you guys did some some bits about it the week of uh the set dressing show anyway regardless he and i were talking about that uh that exact what you were just saying he's a huge fan of late night versus late show where i'm kind of the other way where i love late show versus late night even though i love the entire evolution of things my very favorite segment of all time um, and it's funny because in bathtubs, uh, one of the things that you see is 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 you coming up and looking at the monologue going, okay, how much got butchered out? How much got got mm -hmm. taken out, right? Yeah. Um, I also know there's another place that that would happen, which is my very favorite segment of television for 20 years, 15, 20 years, which was the first segment after the monologue. 
um, at Late Show when Dave would sit down and just talk to the audience. And many times uh, we've come to learn sometimes with a blue card, with a beautiful piece of comedy sitting right there. And, and sometimes he would just go the other way and start talking about, uh, have you seen how many shows there are about cakes? What are people doing? (laughs) They're making cakes look like this and like that, or, or, or something like that. Talking about the bear, the bear, well, the bear story was probably planned, but, but he would talk about moments of his life and, and do exactly what you, what you talk about. That's one of the things that reasons why late show was the one that spoke to my heart even more than late night uh, because he did put so much of his personality into it and, and got, you used the word earlier um, vulnerable. And I think that that just made the audience even that more endeared to him once he started becoming vulnerable, um, long-winded way to get to this question, did the writing change? When you recognize the fact that Dave was becoming more vulnerable, talking about some of these things, did that change any of the way that jokes were written or topics? Did some of the things that were in the penalty box get released at that point? Well, a couple of things happened over the, the course of the show evolving. One was by the mid to late 90s, you had new shows coming in like Jon Stewart, who changed the complexion of the whole late night world. And suddenly, or maybe not suddenly, but definitely it became more expected that a show like Dave's would have its own take on the issues and the stories of the day. We, by When I started in 1990, there were little crumbs of uh, topicality in the top 10 list and a few monologue jokes, but there were not like it was not trying to be the the daily show it was right a different kind of show but then after a while it was well we can't be the daily show but what does dave have to say about things and he would occasionally do some uh some bit that had a political bent but sure i i think uh if there was a change we it was just sort of slow and systematic and you saw and you followed along but uh in terms of whether it's just about his personal curiosities and vulnerabilities and being able to i mean a great strength was the self-deprecating i'm just a dumb guy so i don't understand this maybe you tom brokaw can explain to me why yes so uh, that is a very welcoming and inclusive way to say you people at home may need to know more about this and not even know how to ask i'm feeling the same way let's learn about it together but then also just more emotional stuff like once he was a father and yeah and and wrestling with the just different stages of life yep i think there was probably a little more ability to do things that dealt with difficult emotions in comedy sometimes yep. like, i remember a bit of mine that we that uh dave really liked i wrote it for thanksgiving and he brought it back for christmas it was this united airlines commercial about so you're supposed to go home for the holidays you know you don't want to so here's what we're gonna do we're gonna sell you a ticket for a fake united airlines flight <laughs> and it's gonna look very realistic but at the last minute, oh no, that flight's been canceled. You wished you could have been there, but what can you do? And so it's like <laughs> the agony of of your family relationships and your ambivalence about like spending holidays with your 
yeah. family. It's going to be awkward, but you don't want to not do it. You want to have made the good faith effort. And, and so something about that gnarly human ball <laughs> of emotions appealed to him. Um, that reminds me of a, one of the jokes he did on, on, on my next guest, which I forget who the guest was, uh, which is ironic because, you know, they're supposed to need no introduction. Um, they said to him, uh, do you have siblings? And, and yes, I do. Okay. Have you ever fought with your siblings or, you know, and, and Dave's response offhandedly really quick was, oh, I'll tell you when the fight's over, uh, you know, and then they moved on to the next topic. And, and that just reminds me of that. I can see how that would, would, would appeal. Um, I think you're right. I think as time went on in the fatherhood thing after the heart attack, for sure, uh, that vulnerability started showing up more and more on air. And I just, I just found Not- it. Oh, go ahead. Not technically a heart attack. Sorry, the heart surgery. Yes, thank you. I can't believe I made that mistake. I correct people on that shit all the time. And I, I, I was gonna, thank you. I was just gonna, not technically a heart attack. His heart exploded, which <laughs> also is not true. But I think he liked to say that. But uh, I love when he goes hyperbolous. I, I I love that. Like when he talks about, you know, he got fired from CBS or, you know, they got fired from NBC because Paul was stealing office supplies. Or I love yeah. I love Dave's hyperbolous uh, nature of things. Yeah. I, I just find that really yeah. almost comforting. That, that way that he could tilt reality 22 degrees and it sounds plausible, but it's completely not right. Like uh, one of my favorite tiny things. Yeah. But that, uh, that I have quoted to friends over the years i don't know what year this would have been mid 90s i guess based on when the movie came out he he was talking about that movie uh speed yes and his capsule description of the movie speed was that it was about a talking bus that goes nuts (laughs) which seems like (laughs) i don't think that's right but it almost (laughs) sounds plausible (laughs) That's exactly, yes, that is, now that was Dave, that wasn't, that wasn't written for him, that was just Dave doing, being Dave, right? Right, and who knows if he made that up on the spot or thought of that earlier, once in a while, you'd say something in his presence that, uh, that he filed away for future use, like one time when I I would see him in the afternoon working on the monologue or something, and I don't know if he had a cold or something, and, and I said, oh, you've got the drug resistant TB. And like two days later, like he was at the desk and coughed and said, oh, I've got the drug resistant TB. So like he just <laughs> held on to stuff for possible future use. And I was uh, a well-paid writer on the show. He could take my offhanded remarks and repurpose them from dawn to dusk. And I would be fine with it. Absolutely. Oh, well, uh, Mr. Mulligan and I had a conversation this week, Jerry Mulligan and I, and, and, and he talked about that too. He talked about how sometimes he would slip jokes in just to make Dave laugh. Joke, like, he, like one, the one that he referenced was a dick joke that obviously could not make air. Um, it was, there was a, there was a story in the news about a doctor who was having inappropriate, uh, uh, appointments with his clients or with his patients. And, uh, and, and, and so there was Again, a, thermo- this is the first time hearing of this and I am <laughs> outraged. <laughs> And many of the patients were as well. Uh, 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 a select few probably weren't. Uh, but anyways, um, he it was a thermometer joke, and and uh, and and so Jerry put in the in the packet or whatever, um, you know, the way that the doctor was taking the temperature. Well, Dave then on air a few days later spontaneously, uh, you know, changed it up a little bit and used the word finger instead of what jerry said on it so it was almost like jerry put that in to make dave laugh and then dave threw it into the show 
to kind of ping pong it back to Jerry. And when he told me that, and again, the camaraderie, I think there's so many of us that live vicariously through the the, the, the camaraderie that y'all had, uh, you know, folks who wanted to just desperately be an, an intern so they could be part of that. Like I think about Brian Teda's journey. I want to live vicariously through that career. Like the guy shows up as an intern, ends up coming up on air, talent a little bit here and there, moves up segment producer. Now he's executive producing The View. All of that sounds ex exquisite, except for The View part. Um, I, I, you know, the camaraderie that you guys had, you guys and gals had, um, again, a family is the only way I can describe it. Uh, with what Jerry said there, it made me think, okay, I'm gonna ask Steve that question. Was there ever anything that you threw in whether it be a monologue joke or something that was, yeah, this is just for Dave because I know it's going to make him smile. I know he's going to take it and just do something else with it. But was that, was, did you ever do any of that? Yeah, uh, I remember I used to write a lot of the uh, From New York's and Man Who's. Uh, eventually after 9-11, it was just From New York, the greatest city in the world. But yeah. uh, we would need batches of From New York, the... Uh, the the world of uh, uh, just whatever odd yeah. phrase and then the and now bad boy electrician dave letterman just whatever yes. odd phrase you might have seen in the news or conjured yourself uh for staffers birthdays or uh, at least writers and other maybe producers uh you would get a bottle of very nice champagne from mr letterman with a little card happy birthday or whatever oh, so yeah. i had not yet uh, uh like the day after i thought oh well, I, I guess i should write him a thank you note oh i know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna hand him a page of man uh from new york's and like sprinkled in there is gonna be thanks for the champagne dave <laughs> and he picked that one no kidding but then i don't think it went on the air i think somebody thought it was fun that he put it in the page it was even more fun that dave played along and picked it but really we're not gonna do that one. we're gonna so, stop the tomfoolery right now okay yeah but we <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you know about Celebrigum. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you yeah. about Celebrigum. That's on my list. Right. Yep. That was this project that I did just for the sheer pleasurable stupidity of it. But Dave really got behind it. And it was kind of, it was never on the show. Yeah. It was just this satellite project. But he took pleasure in it and, and decided to elevate it and play along and actually paid uh, a lot of money out of his own pocket to frame and professionally mount dozens of the photos at that year's uh, late show holiday party, which was at an art gallery downtown with all the photos around the walls. And that seemed like, all right, he, he called my bluff. He, he, he liked my joke and then he expanded on it and made it. We're going to make this way too big now. Yeah. He rolled up his sleeves and said, check this out. Uh, okay. So, so, I'm okay at this. I really appreciate when I have someone on the other side who's actually better at this than me and can lead the conversation. Um, Tom Bones Malone did the same thing. He basically, in the first 10 minutes of our interview, asked all the questions that I kind of wanted to ask. He summed everything up so we could go deeper with that. You bringing up Celebrigum right there and you bringing up also the fact that you used to um, do Alan Coulter's uh, copy, uh, you know, for this. Because this is this is stuff that fans want to know that I don't necessarily get around to, to, to saying uh, and because I'm so excited just to just to shoot the shit with you. Um, thank you for talking about how you were the one or one of the the ones who did those um, those amazing uh, Alan Coulter 
uh, bumpers that he mm-hmm. would do in between the commercial breaks or, or, or from New York. And I love after 9-11 how it became the greatest city in the world and kind of stayed there. Um, did you also, because uh, at a certain point it changed from uh, broadcasting from New York in the heart of New York and broadcast all around the world or something like that. The copy changed. Uh, do you remember when and why that changed? Uh, that particular detail, I don't remember, but, uh, you mentioned, uh, we called them the act fives in the last, I don't know, eight or 10 years of the show, just like coming up tomorrow on the late show, Dave's guests are blah, 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 blah. And then there'd be some strange offhanded comedic flourish of some sort (laughs) Yeah, that became, uh, my fiefdom. And I was very happy about that. Very protective of it because it could be a true full flowering of, a cheerful, absurd sensibility that still was exactly true to the show. But what Dave loved about weird stuff in the act five, it did not depend, it did not live or die according to an audience reaction because it was just the band was playing and everyone was going like this. And if you heard what Alan said and thought it was funny, great. If you heard it and just thought that's weird, it didn't appear that the show had been damaged. So that was one of the last places you could be wildly strange and experimental with uh, no downside um and and it was cool too because alan uh in his delivery i'll tell you the genesis of, of where the show where i actually jumped off the pier and decided to do the show it was after alan passed away uh because at the end i have such adoration for that man having never met him uh or spoken with him i i just adore him and he was one of the guys that would be the low-hanging fruit that would probably be willing to come on you know five six seven times to just shoot the shit about memories on the show he was such a from every every person uh, who talks about alan calter i just appreciate uh how kind and generous and and how just willing he is to you know to be accessible um the fact that he would take those act five lines many times and and put them on him or or something like that uh i just really appreciate that about him and the fact that um oh my granddaughter's coming in look at this hi sweetheart I'm so sorry about that. Look at that. This is my granddaughter right there. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Mimi's call. Okay. So go up and talk to Mimi. I'll be up in just a few minutes. Yeah. I'm almost done, my love. Okay. Yeah. Okay, my love. Steve says bye. Okay. She said bye. Uh, Thank you for putting up with that. Um, Alan would take some of those lines and make them about him or if where you wrote them about him and it would just make the lore of Alan Coulter that much stranger. Did you ever write any of Alan's um, pieces, his remotes or anything like oh, that? Yeah, or by yeah. that time, oh, you did. Any that come to mind that uh, you're you're particularly uh, fond of? I think we did it at least once. I was like, Alan Coulter makes your company's product sound sexy just some weird thing like that he really was and i don't know if they fully understood this when they hired him he was another ultra powerful secret weapon for the show in the same way paul schaefer turned out to be the perfect foil and balance for dave and we lucked out again and again like rupert he was just right there he i don't know there was only a few interactions that dave would regularly have with people one was uh jack hannah and other times if it was dave talking to rupert Mm -hmm. my my comedy damaged mind would be set free from its shackles and i would just roar with laughter at what was happening with with dave talking to rupert and he just happened to be there in that deli when we moved there and he was 
just this charming, good-hearted guy who would just nod and sort of look rueful or placid or whatever. And just what a what a bizarre, wonderful chemistry that that was with him. I uh, don't know if you again, I, I would not be at all surprised if you're like, OK, this guy's an amateur. I'm just going to lead this whole thing. I don't know if you did this on purpose or if it was just serendipitous. Uh, and and it's just the one of the delights of my day is to get one of my heroes or architects of of the thing that I love most, which is uh, the late show and and put them into an unwitting, make them unwitting accomplishment, uh, accomplishment. I can't even say the word uh, partners in a commercial. Uh, but the the Letterman podcast is brought to you by the Hello Deli. Our one and only sponsor is brought to you by the Hello Deli, Rupert's, Rupert G's Hello Deli, uh, nestled in the womb of the Ed Sullivan Theater. Um, and one of the only places on earth you can buy Late Show with David Letterman merchandise. Um, it, please go to hello-deli.com if you want to get a Rupert t-shirt, uh, a David Letterman mug uh, from the Late Show or other uh, plethora of of uh, merchandise um and if you ask him really nicely he does pack them himself and if you ask really nicely he may add onions to your order so hello-deli.com uh go on there the one and only sponsor of the letterman podcast uh we love you rupert thank you very much and uh steve does too apparently because yeah. it was gold everything that you guys did did you know that did you did you know that beforehand or was that that the that they we sponsor were... us no i didn't know that happened so... the way it was supposed to Serendipity, <laughs> say yes. Um, and good business sense for all involved. Uh, I'm so grateful about this. Um, Celebrity gum, yes. Before we before we finish off, one thing I appreciate about you, and I can I can say this, uh, you, you know, if if you want to get to know Steve a little bit more, again, he is quoted verbatim uh, many times in this book here, and you definitely get a chance to get to know his sensibility. Uh, hopefully, that has come across here, uh, the comedy damaged mind that he talks about here. I mean, you've seen so much, and and the fact that you still even have the ability to laugh. Uh, to go back to bathtubs for a second, the or moment pretend to laugh. Okay, well there you go. Uh, I, I I've seen childlike delight on your face, and it was when in bathtubs when you um, somebody said some I forget which commercial it was. Have you ever heard this commercial? Oh, it's so or not commercial. This um, this track off of one of the musicals. It was delightful, and and you're just kind of standing there and and looking at something, and then the record player starts in the background. And the commercial starts and the smile on your face, like literally childlike joy right. shows up. Yes, I know that moment. And uh, please don't confuse your viewers and listeners. These were not commercials. No, these were, sorry. These were musical productions only for in-house infotainment for the sales force. But yes, that was yes. the uh, the uh, Frigidaire uh, 1963 song where I you can put payoff punch in your selling. With yes. power of frigid air or something, and uh, it was one I'd never heard, but I immediately recognized. Oh, this is a good one, and I already have a suspicion about who wrote it based on the style. And I was vindicated years later when I went back and did some more archaeology in a uh, the, the families uh, of a, a deceased composer with all the files in the basement, and I found yes, I was correct. But anyway, yes, the child joy. wonder. I, I always retain that, I think. And even if so many uh, millions of jokes over the decades have uh, beaten down and burned out certain receptors that make me able to laugh with childlike wonder, I still can regard things with childlike wonder and enthusiasm, especially when they're not 
like scripted and meant to be funny and put through it uh, a whole production pipeline. It's the spontaneous moments of surprise that really can get me. Well, and that full circle back to Rupert right there, because again, you can't, you could never script those moments, uh, you know, where Rupert was just, you know, being himself in front of the camera and kind of look and, and, and the things that they would go back and forth with the double right. meetings of things and, and, and Dave's reaction, the ping pong, um, the spontaneity. I, I appreciate sometimes, that. So, go ahead. Oh, sometimes we would play with that. Like we would say, Let's take a look back at all the different talented actors who have played the Paul Schaefer role over the years, like pretending that it had all been just cast and, oh, that guy for a couple of years. Yeah, he wasn't quite right. Oh, I don't remember him. But then we found this guy in 19, 1994, and he has been our Paul Schaefer ever since. And isn't he marvelous, ladies and gentlemen? So we sort of play with the the reality of what exactly any of this was at its yes. core and it was clear that it was a joke but it was also like it's if it's plausible i think they loved things that were wrong but plausible that was part of his core sensibility well and go back to the record collection okay because then you, uh the, the the fun facts books or the different parody books that you, you did over the years but the record collection, they were actually real records. And again, you, as the viewer, you weren't sure. Like in it, the plausibility of things, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of uh, humor in that. And the fact that you can dissect it again, um, you know, everything at its highest level is is, is philosophy. You, sir, are a, uh, a, co a comedy philosopher. Uh, there's no question about that. I want to be conscious of everybody's time here. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to cut it short here. Uh, Giller always gets uh, he always points this out to me whenever I ask somebody if they will come back on air he said you know that they are required to say they will come back they're not going to say they're not going to come back if you do that and that's when i politely say to don yeah i know uh because i'll use any uh tactic that i can to get them to come back um can you and i do uh, somewhere down the line can we do a, a podcast about bathtubs and 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 do that maybe that's the next way i uh, i can weasel my way into a, a conversation with you steve Absolutely. Yes. Uh, uh, there'll be a long list of conditions and of you course. might not be able to meet them. But for now, let the record show that I cheerfully agreed. Uh, the record, it is so entered into the record. Um, I finish off uh, these episodes uh, by by asking a question. I love Dave's evolution. Many of us who watch this uh, love Dave's evolution. Many of us have uh, their favorites, of course, favorite times of Dave's career. I love that he's moved into long form now. I think it is a natural evolution and we've talked, we've alluded to that, I think, uh, in, in our discussion today. Um, I love that he's doing long form, uh, the kind of the Tom Snyder thing uh, with my next guest um if there were three people uh and i say living or dead if there were three people living or dead that you would like to see if you were the show booker and you didn't care anything about metrics um pop culture where it's at now anything like that if there were three people that you would like to see dave do the long form with uh, on my next guest who would those three people be so it can be Living or dead. Yes, can sir. We also add alive, but in a vegetative state. Yes, we certainly can because that uh, would very much test. That would test Dave's skills uh, tremendously. There probably would be no bigger test than that. Mm. All right. Um, I'm just uh, going to go by pure raw instinct here. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say Winston Churchill. Oh, yep. Uh, I'm going to say Lenny Bruce. 
Uh, and I'm going to say... All right. As, oh, I, I, I shot out of the gate so well. I'm just going to throw something else in here on the top and, and, and call it a day. But uh, uh, how about Norman Rockwell? Oh, my God. Those are three awesome answers. Um, man, I can't tell you. It, does it translate through the ones and zeros how grateful I am? I hope it does. Oh, Steve, very I'm much. So... It's, it's very flattering and 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 slightly alarming since I just think, well, it's the thing I did for a long time and I, and I, I, that was great and I regret nothing. And I also, I, I, as I said at the outset, it's not my bailiwick to be the fan and the archivist. And I'm yeah. so thrilled that there are people who are doing it right. So, and yet it feels odd to me. I, I understand the impulse because I do it on a different sphere. Yeah. And so I, I don't, uh, I don't think it's at all uh, odd or wrong. I just have now the experience of being on the other side of something where all my composer friends who wrote industrial shows are surprised that people are asking them about it and want to keep talking about the diesel engine show or whatever. Yeah. So, so I, I've, I've felt it on both sides now, but I salute you. Uh, well, I appreciate that uh, more than more than you'll know. Um, if people want to come follow you, uh, obviously, steveyoungworld.com is where uh, the website is. And there's some very cool things that are archived on there. And and I think it does a pretty good job of going through all the different categories of how people might uh, access you and, and and some of the projects you've been a part of. Um, are you still doing the, now that kind of the, the world is opening back up again, are you still doing any lecturing or public speaking, that sort of thing? Are there ways that people uh, can get a hold of you? starting to get uh some feelers going on some live shows again uh, nothing to announce yet but i hope to be able to nail something down in the coming months and and start going out again and showing some of the crazy beautiful bizarre film clips from the bathrooms are coming or the ge silicones musical or whatever yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, I, I, my, my hope is that as this thing grows and whatnot, I'm really enjoying, uh, coming into this world the way that, that I have been. My, my hope is any, any of you people, uh, who worked for the show or part of the pants family, uh, along the way, uh, my, the wish is there that at some point we can cross paths where I can actually, uh, whether it's hire a former writer to, to, to help me with some jokes or something like that, or to somebody who, uh, Tom Dreesen does comedy workshops, things like that. I want to, I want to, I want to employ him for a night somehow some way to do that i feel the exact same way about you i would love to support that if people want to reach out to you is the website the best way to do it are you on the social channels as well yeah there's uh there's links on steveyoungworld.com to the various uh social media things but i think there is a direct email thing to cl click as well if you uh have even more questions about the grape break segment or <laughs> we, we went into but yeah i'm i'm ambivalent about social media as i think many people are in different ways and mostly it's just a venue for me to put put up strange photos that i take and i was very proud also speaking of photos sometimes i would show dave letterman weird pictures i took and there was one that he was so enamored of again he just said i need this enlarged and framed in my office and uh, what a what a stamp of approval that some odd moment that you captured with a camera resonated with him so much oh what was the picture it was uh i think in riverside park in new york 
uh, in the foreground, there was a guy splayed out on the ground. It was clearly he was hot and had taken his shirt off and he was like on the sort of marble steps of some monument or something. He was just exhausted and flopped over. And in the background, there was a guy uh, facing away from the camera in a T-shirt playing violin. And it is evocative and, and weird and urban and random. And he just said that I need that. Um, we've had Mark Carson on the show who did the late night bumpers early on and, and, and whatnot. And, and, uh, I love odd, absurd pictures like that as well. And I, that, that seems akin to me is, is very similar in style and, uh, bent perception perhaps a little bit. Yeah. Um, what a way to, to end. I appreciate you giving of your time. And as you said, uh, becoming a little bit chatty. Um, thank you so much for this. Uh, of course, a shout out to Mr. Steve O'Donnell, who made this happen, who made this connection happen and whatnot. Um, yes. Thank you. you. Talk about, oh, go ahead. Oh, Steve O'Donnell, by the way, in the finale of Bathtubs Over Broadway, the big musical finale, no, without spoiling it too much, but he is in it he makes a cameo appearance in it, which I love because he was the one, as I said, who on that long ago first day at my uh, job as a late show writer, Letterman writer, put me on the track of the record collection. And then uh, 28 years later, it had flowered to the point where there was a movie that we could put him in about the same thing. Uh, oh, great. A great way to segue. And when we do, I don't know if you still have it or not, but the, uh, the sequence tuxedo jacket you were wearing, I don't know if you still have that jacket or not, but, uh, that, that one had to go back to the Edith head costume <laughs> department at NBC universal or whatever it was. But, uh, uh, yes, uh, people ask me about that, uh, sequin jacket. So I'm going to have to buy one of my own someday, clearly. Well, something to wear on stage when you're doing your lectures, I think, uh, right there. Um, thank you so much, Steve. And thank you, as I've said uh, privately to so many of you, thank you for helping to create um, the odd brainway, uh, brain pathways uh, that have made me who I am. And it is odd, but I, I am so grateful for it. I appreciate you. I appreciate uh, everything that you have done. Um, just read Celebrigum, everyone. If you want to see somebody who puts a lot of thought into something that might not really go anywhere and you look at the care of the words uh, put in there, uh, you will see uh, the heart of Steve Young. Thank right. you so much, sir. Celebrigum.com. Really it's a, a blog. I've left it up. It ended. And then I just thought, well, I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah, well, and 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 it's good because uh, uh, like an undiscovered, um, you know, treasure, people will pick it up and they will appreciate it. It's so awesome. Um, thank you very much. Until we we talk again, thank you, Steve. I appreciate right. it. Uh, there it is, another episode of the Letterman Podcast. Thank you so much for everything. Until I don't have to say this anymore, please like, share, subscribe. Uh, I cannot wait until the scale is to the point where I don't got to say that anymore. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm really enjoying the process at this part of it as well. So thank you very much, everybody. My Would name is Mike. Oh, go ahead. Would you actually at some point say we have too many subscribers? Uh, if you can find it in your heart to sort of drift away from us, we'd appreciate it. Hey, I hope I hope to be faced with that choice at some point. It would be uh, a very interesting to see what I would say uh, when I have that perspective. So let's see what happens. Uh, let's let's see. Let's check it out and find out. So share it with everybody, you know. And then one day, maybe we'll see if we uh, if we tell you, well, OK, time to back it off. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. My name is Mike Chisholm. This is the Letterman Podcast. Thank you and good night. Overcoat and underpants.